Because that the story the of that movie, yeah, yeah, with the killer ticks. But it's about taking a group of troubled teenagers on a camping trip, and then the ticks God, start them? attacking them. Seth Green's in it, and Clint Howard. Oh, then no, I don't think I have seen yeah. that one. Clint so that Howard's in it like, like pretty briefly. It's from, uh, yeah, I think so. Let's see, ticks movie ninety three. Yeah. Clint Howard, I think, is like a dude in a shed who's friends with the ticks. Of course he is, dude. <laughs> Clint Howard would be the guy who could talk to the ticks. Right. He is a tick. It's a pretty good movie. Clint Howard is a tick, dude. He's been sucking on the lifeblood of his brother Ron for his whole <laughs> career. <laughs> He's getting fat on that guy. Dude, speaking of... Uh... Sucking on lifeblood. I watched uh, the third part of Night, the first Zhivovsky film. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been on my watch list oh, forever. Oh, fucking God. Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Welcome, welcome, folks, to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me tonight are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a topic for the week and the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, buck up against the topic. I was up this week. It was my turn to pick. And as I uh, briefly mentioned at the end of our podcast last week, I had a very interesting experience where I got to be on the news, the televisual news. I got uh, invited to speak regarding the passing of the great director, William Friedkin. And, uh, you know, for us Chicago boys, it was uh, uh, a sad day. So it was a great honor to, to send off that that great great chicago boy william friedkin um but you know it just got me kind of thinking a little bit about the whole apparatus of tv news you know my experience got me uh, a little peek behind the curtain of how those shows are produced how they unfold and uh i was certainly um uh, having a blast with with all of it, you know, with the artifice and and the reality smashing into each other. So I thought it would be a a rich a rich platform for you two to play with. And boy, oh boy, breaking news, folks! We've got us a hell of a double feature this week. Two wildly different films that, uh, spoiler alert, I had an absolute ball with. Um, yes. And, uh, without further ado, 
we should just bring them out. No, no hesitation. Let's just dive right in. So, uh, Marsh, I believe you had the earlier of the two films. Why don't you tell everyone what you brought for us this week? Sure. You know, this is one of those topics I found when I was sort of rooting around to be difficult in the sense that there are some certified bangers, films like The Insider, Broadcast News. You know, these are films that I love, but they're a little too obvious, you know, of course, right? And sort of the gulf between, like, those and the rest of the field, you know, it was... it was. Uh, and interesting to, to sift around through it. And I kept coming back to a film that I had seen fairly recently. Um, and I couldn't get out of my head. And it seemed perfect and seemed like something that you two would both enjoy. So uh, I went with it. And that film is War of the Worlds Next Century from 1981 written and directed by Polish filmmaker Piotr Szolkin. This film, as the title <laughs> alludes to, is a sort of loose reworking of the War of the Worlds. And as the film makes clear, you may think, uh, well, the H.G. Wells version, right? Yes, and he also dedicates the film to Orson. So you get a double Wells dedication at the beginning, so you know uh, what territory uh, you're in. War of the Worlds is, uh, takes place at the end of the century, 1999, and it follows a television news presenter named Iron Edom as he uh, is this successful independent news broadcaster, anchor, uh, who very enthusiastically delivers the news with a goofy blonde wig on. <laughs> uh, and as the film starts, uh, his world is, is rocked as he goes into the television station. And just before he's about to go on air, a producer comes up to him and takes his script and gives him another one. Read this, you know, and sort of strong arms him. And uh, we learn that the Martians have invaded Earth and specifically Poland. Uh, and Iron Edom is tasked with giving the sort of uh, welcome Martians line, the pro-Martians line, uh, and he doesn't really understand what's going on at first, and shortly after that, uh, you know, a SWAT team with chainsaws bursts into his apartment and kidnaps his wife and shoves a bunch of newspaper in his mouth, and he's left to uh, wander the Polish dystopia and sort of figure out what all this means uh, as the Martians have come to Poland. You know, um, geez, yeah, this is uh, sort of a what now people are, are describing, I, I suppose, vinegar syndrome, describing as a tetralogy of apocalypse or science fiction films that Shulkin made in the 1980s. Uh, he had made short films and documentaries throughout the 1970s, and in fact, he like our other filmmaker tonight, uh, worked in television news. So he had a lot of experience. You know, he sort of trained as a filmmaker on the news, like so many people did back then. So I think uh, the level of vitriol he has for the news is very palpable uh, in this film. But yeah, these quote-unquote science fiction films, these four science fiction films that he made in the 1980s, 
uh, were largely forgotten over time, but have had a huge resurgence in the past 10 years or so. I want to say starting around 2015, um, there was a Lincoln Center screening of Gollum, Spectacle Theater, our, our good friends at Spectacle Theater did a, a screening of all of them back in 2015, and they've since been made available on Blu-ray, uh, and that was one of my summer projects as well. So that was like, I wanted to get this out there and recommend all of these films. I just finished watching uh, the last one yesterday, and goddamn, check these things out, they're amazing. So yeah, War of the Worlds, uh, it is a, a grim Kafka-esque descent into, yeah, televisual madness. What's real? What isn't? It's War of the Worlds, baby, for the next century. And I think uh, it's as prescient as ever, you know? Um, I guess just a little context on the film, of course. Poland, uh, a place of much context necessary, right, usually. And this, of course, is a film that was made... Um, you know, towards the latter uh, stages of, of the Polish communist experience in the uh, Polish People's Republic. And the film was made just as solidarity was starting to get going. So there was a lot of tension in the streets and, and he was sort of feeding off that when he was constructing the film. Of course, it's a heavily allegorical film being a film that had to pass uh, Polish censors and all that and just work in that system. Um, but it could, yeah, it could be about the Soviets, it could be about uh, a lot of other stuff as well, you know? So it's not just like a single-minded allegory. I think there's a, a sort of lot going on here. Um, the film was uh, banned shortly after its release because its release coincided with martial law and the sort of like coup of 1981. Martian law. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Marsh law, yes. Um, and so it was eventually released uh, two years later in 1983 and did, and did have its day in the sun. Um, and yeah, it remains a, a marvel. And I just, uh, again, I can't say it enough. Yeah, run, don't walk to these films if you're, if you're like me because they're, uh, they're a lot of fun uh, and they have a lot to think about, you know? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> that's War of the Worlds next century. Thank you, Marsh. And you know, it's it's uh, it's appropriate as well. I think that I started by mentioning my news experience with William Friedkin, and as you've said, like the directors who started in TV, because I'm sure many of our listeners might also know this, but William Friedkin also started in TV news as well. So, so yeah, the the men of a certain age, right? Directors of a certain age. Um, Ryan, how about you? What did you bring us this week? Well, funny enough, I, I've also been on the news. I've been on the news twice. <laughs> That's right. Once. Actually, well, no, a few times, actually, now that I think about it. I'm remembering oh, all my boy. news appearances. First time was when I was a this freshman. Guy's big time in me all of a sudden. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a news, I'm actually a news guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, it, what just came back to me just now was when I was on the news freshman year of college because we had this little ritual after dinner uh, in the student center at DePaul, we would go on Ebert Walk because I knew where Roger Ebert lived. Ebert Walk. And it was more just like our after dinner walk. And we would go down, uh, God, what, what street was it? But you just, you go a little bit into the heart of uh, Lincoln Park. We would well, walk that's, back. That's not Doc's Chaz, you know? Yeah. I mean, come on. She might still be living there. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyways, it was within walking distance of the DePaul campus, and we would do a loop, and every day we would hope, like, ah, oh, I hope we see Ebert. Um, we never did, and he, when he died, we, were, we did Ebert walk that day in his honor, and there was a news crew out there. And they were they wanted to know what we were doing there, and we said, "Oh, we love Roger Ebert." And it was me and my buddy Sean Austin. We we had a little bit oh. bit of an appearance talking about Ebert, why we love Ebert, you know. And they did they went the whole film school student angle, very funny. You but dorks. I, <laughs> but yeah, so that was like me as a, a soundbite guy. I've also had the experience of virtual interviews on the news, which is what you recently did with with Friedkin, and that's like its own animal. Right, it's like getting coached and set up, and you've got the news team there. You're calling in virtually, but I also got to do the daytime news in person for for yeah, cine in youth. the studio. Yeah, and that was crazy because <laughs> it was just I was in the studio and there was bozo the clown stuff everywhere, and they were really insistent that I like could not wear patterned clothes. Everything had to be solid colors. Very coached and what I would say, and it was just amusing saying silly niche things and having the hosts react with such fervor and energy and and interest. But it was all very pleasant, you know. They were very, they were all very friendly. But yeah, so I've, you know, it was funny when you brought up the topic. I was just thinking about all my my time on the news, and I guess in thinking about it personally, it's funny then that the direction I went in yet again, uh, was the personal documentary sphere. I was there last week with Kave, and now I'm back with someone, Marsh, you had even referenced last week when we were talking. I You did. You were talking about the idea of the personal documentary, and I think that Ross McKelvey, uh, the filmmaker um, who directed the film I chose, is sort of a beacon for personal documentary. And even as much so, I had forgotten... uh, because it has been a long time since I've seen one of his films, and I, I had only seen Sherman's March, which is what he's most famous for. And I was surprised as how many correlations I saw between his style and, and John Wilson and how mm. much of an influence he must have been for, yeah. for that type of filmmaking, just kind of like going at it from a personal angle, but then because of that showing a sincere interest in the people around you, getting access to some stories you otherwise might not would have if it was a more formal type of arrangement. Well, and our other buddy, Kuchar, dude, you know. Of course. No, of course. Yeah, Ross McElwee's somewhere in the middle between, like, George Kuchar and, and Kave in a funny way. This whole, like, personal documentary sphere. So, yeah, I, I when I was doing some research, I came across this film from 1996 called The Six O'Clock News. And I had never heard of it before. I, I've Like I said, I've only seen the one film. And I think... Ross McElwee explains it very well what the idea of the film is at the beginning. And when the film starts, he introduces himself, as he often does with his filmmaking. It's very autobiographical filmmaking. And he talks about how his art blurs the lines a little bit between personal documentary and also just home movies. He's always filming. He's capturing his life and wondering how it could all be incorporated perhaps later into a larger project. And when we find him at the beginning of this film... His son has just been born. And because of that, he notes that he spends a lot of time at home now with his wife. They go out a little bit less, and they watch a lot of TV, and they watch a lot of news, particularly the 6 o'clock news. And watching a lot of the news, he can't help but find himself concerned about the state of the world and wondering about how things are going, specifically in America, because of how sensational and 
haunting so many of these stories are. And he starts reflecting about his own relationship with this in the sense of he's making home movies and how people who end up being featured on the 6 o'clock news are sort of experiencing a home movie that they themselves never wanted made. Part of him also realized, upon reflecting on all of these thoughts, that he himself felt very distant from those people. And, you know, we kind of have this built-in assumption ourselves when we watch the news, that could never be us. We, you know, oh, that happens to other people. These types of things don't happen to me. And he learns that uh, a very dear friend of his, Charlene, in North Carolina, uh, just encountered a terrible hurricane, and he goes out to, to talk to her and learn more about it and to see if she's okay and kind of get a sense of, of the house. And it's, it's, I think, that transition, both him raising his son and being more concerned about his son's safety and the safety of his own environment and then also seeing it affect one of his friends that I think the the idea of the television news kind of then becomes a primary source of interest for him in the way that these types of stories and these types of tragedies are relegated to sound bites. So his project then, this film, is he decides to go and visit people that he sees on the 6 o'clock news and to give them more time to share their story outside of a soundbite, to have it be more of a participatory home movie of sorts. And yeah, that's what the structure of the film is from that point on. He catches some stories, he drives around, he meets some people, we get to know them really well. All the while, of course, the film does keep drifting back into direct autobiographical territory, and he starts, you know, he gets pitched to direct a narrative film and this and that. But I think the film really shines when he's he's talking to other people and we're hearing other people's stories. Ross McElwee's very well educated. He's, you know, kind of a southern goofy guy right from North Carolina and now he's a Harvard prof professor he's uh, very eloquent and naturally when he's encountering all of these stories he does go on rants about chaos theory and chance and he starts trying to come up with some sort of overall thesis for all of it but ultimately yeah I, I thought it was a really beautiful film I feel like it's a, a very much a life-affirming film and I, it really struck a chord with me too just because I feel like in my life I've seen a lot of people whose outlook and worldview have kind of been poisoned by the six o'clock news you know i've seen people that haven't really come back with it people who are afraid of the world because if you just take the news at face value it can be really troubling what ends up making it on the news and i yeah i just feel like growing up in the suburbs of chicago I, I, there were a lot of adults i think that were very afraid of the world of their fellow man and I really do blame the news for it. So I, I think it was a noble thing, just the, the idea of this film in general. And that's what drew me to it. And that's also what I walked away from. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. It's a funny movie, too. Um, so yeah, that's the 6 o'clock news from 1996. Thank you, Ryan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said um, a few of those things there um, about that. That's sort of like poisoning of, of the mind uh, that can can happen, and certainly, I think both films are are exploring that that concept. Um, because for me, I was uh, this week. You know, I when I laid down the topic for you both. You know, I I do recall you being like, "Well, any any kind of news, or is it any kind of like that?" And and I was very specific that I was like, "No, I, I really want us to focus on mm -hmm. TV news specifically because I do think that there is." is a, a specificity to it, you know, that, that sets it apart in terms of how it's consumed. So, uh, for me, I started like going back in my head to this 
a really great piece on television more broadly by Samuel Weber that I had read years ago in this really great book he wrote called Mass Meteoras. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's sort of exploring, you know, the theory behind a lot of different forms of media that we consume. There's an excellent chapter on television and uh, how television affects us in his mind. And uh, this this part of the the essay that that I kept coming back to while, while watching these films is just at a certain point, him saying, let's really try to understand the medium itself. And, and break that down, you know, uh, the process for our consciousness and how it, it interacts with this. And he says, if you, if you even just, you know, it's a very sort of like theorist thing to do, right? Let's just talk about the, the, the Greco-Latinate root of the word television, you know? And he's like, what does this specifically mean, right? How do we define this? Television, uh, if you really want to translate the word, it's, it's like sight over distance or farsightedness, right? And farsightedness, we could simply say to see far. Oh, that, that seems like a great thing. But he makes the point, well, in a medical definition, farsightedness is not actually better vision, right? Uh, farsightedness in those terms means that you can only or more clearly see things that are far away from you. And in, as you put it in your intro, Ryan, uh, at a distance, things that are distant from you, you see the things that are removed from you, that are distant from you more clearly than the things that are right in front of your face. And that is, of course, a bad thing, right? That's, yeah. an, that's an affliction <laughs> of sorts. And so, of course, for me, you know, I, I was thinking of that concept and how both of these films are playing with that idea, right? That that television news is about this kind of farsightedness. And there is a extreme disconnect between the messages or transmissions, right, that we're receiving from a distance and what's happening literally right outside our door or or in our apartment in our own home. And I think that both of these films, uh, in their own ways, of course, are grappling with this in a major way. Yeah, I think that idea then reminds me of how when I was watching Six O'Clock News, I was thinking about what sort of feels like a paradox in certain respects when we have that distance and how we internalize the six o'clock news in the sense of, as you said, we feel like this can't happen to us. This is at a distance and we're not recognizing how much we may have in common with the types of stories that are happening or how really these types of events in people's lives, it's just a few steps in the wrong direction that things could take or just, you know, chance, of course. But at the same time, there's also that element too of when you're looking at places that are maybe at a distance. Like I think about, again, growing up in the suburbs and the news talking about violence in Chicago and how, you know, some of these suburban parents seeing something at a distance that's being represented on the news then come away with such a strong opinion of, well, this is how Chicago is. You can't walk the streets. Oh, no, my kids can never go up there at night or without parental supervision. My kid's not going to go to school in Chicago, you know, because it's just not safe. There's something about that, too, where you can feel a distance and feel as though certain elements of it don't apply to your own life. But then there's also this cer certainty 
over what's being depicted as of course it's the news you have to trust it these things are happening and these broad truths that they're communicating must be symptoms of like this this large ill like a, a city an urban menace type of situation mm-hmm. well funny then too because for for all the the farness of it all it's in your in your living room right you know you're as close to it as possible i mean people who obsess over chicago violence on the news are closer to chicago violence than i am on a day-to-day basis i walk outside and i see beautiful trees i don't see chicago violence right but for someone who isn't here it's in their living room, you know, right? right. So uh, it's very near in a sense. And I do like that uh, McElwee starts to starts to have this this affliction from watching so much television. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's being flip. It really does warp your mind. And I was thinking when I was waiting to watch you on CBS, Andy, uh, there was, you know, a a couple human interest stories, but there was about three to five minutes of just like crime, 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 crime. Next up, DePaul professor talking about William Friedkin, (laughs) you know, it was, it was such a jarring, uh, such a jarring like whiplash, right? If it bleeds, it leads, right? You know? Oh Yeah. You know, I, I, I mentioned Weber and, and it, it pushed me to get back into the essay to dig it up. I hadn't seen the essay in, in years. I once used this essay in my media literacies class when I like first started adjuncting. So I pulled it out because I was like, I remember a specific passage that I, I would like really go over with my class. And it's it's amazing how much it connects I, I was like debating whether or not I was going to include it, but like off of already what we've said, it is just so spot on uh, to this very idea that I think I should just share it here really quickly. So again, Weber is is talking about this ambivalence that that both of you have just described, the the nearness and the farness afflicting us at the same time. He says, this then is one of the tendencies that renders television a set of the most ambiguous, most ambivalent kind. It sets only by unsettling. And yet this unsettling tendency is also constantly being recuperated and reappropriated. And this allows television also to function as a bulwark of the established order. The more the medium tends to unsettle, the more powerfully it presents itself as the antidote to the disorder to which it contributes. Mm. And that is just so spot on for both of these films, man. You know, in the case again of, of like McElwee, like, yes, he's getting news brain, like as he's watching it and it's pushing him to just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Right. Again, this, this chaos that he's seeing on his screens. And then what do they say on the news? Like, stay tuned for more, right? Stay tuned for more. We'll guide you through this, whether it's, whether it's yes, crime statistics or whether it's Stormwatch, right? Tune into channel nine and we'll tell you like how to prepare for the oncoming hurricane or whatever. And again, in the case, of uh, of of War of the Worlds, right? I mean, that is absolutely the case. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, right? About the entire apparatus of this quote independent news station of which Iron Eden is the anchor. You know, it's like there's this horrible event taking place, 
Or is it? Yes. Well, we'll find out more. Stay tuned. You know, like again, this, this, this horror that is presented to you. And all they say is if you want to, if you want to guide yourself through the horror, just keep watching. Right. 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 Yeah. And I think what you said, Marsh, about how McKelly isn't flip about the news and about the way that it affects him because it is so easy to get news brain. I, I was realizing while watching six o'clock news, how I haven't been exposed to that type of news in a really, really long time. You know, I grew up with the news on, but when I'm watching the gauntlet of horrible, horrifying news stories that McElwee is presenting to us, I too get terrified and I go, Oh my God, what's happening in this country. And I want, even just with that quick rapid fire editing of like, horror stories he shares of people stabbing each other over a pack of cigarettes you know you're you're watching it and because of the way it's arranged you do want to then hear the full story you do want to listen to the people that are communicating this to you you want answers from the news it's scary and uh we've not really had a moment's peace at night since Joanne Yavner and her family went out and bought a dog the very next day after this man broke into their home with everyone asleep and tried to lure their seven-year-old daughter away. The boy fell about 20 feet from a second-floor window in the rear of the building. This is the 16th child to fall from a window in the greater Boston area in the last few months. Investigators have been given the go-ahead to test the DNA of a priest suspected in the murder of an altar boy. Hunters found the body of a young child, apparently Holly, this weekend. Just come home. Just let me know you're alive. Police say Milne was driving the car which ran over 15-year-old Stephen Ross as the straight-A student walked home from a party. Faulty electrical wiring is listed as the cause tonight of a horrible fire in Chelsea. Fire officials say 11-year-old Jonathan, 10-year-old Jesse, 4-year-old Jose Luis, 18-month-old Raymond, and 8-month-old Alba never had a chance. The fire was so intense. And I was shocked even in just those brief glimpses of the 6 o'clock news, how effective it still is, the design of that apparatus, when you're when even having just not visited it for so long, and knowing deep down like the ills that it creates and what it does to your brain and why it's designed the way it is. It's spooky. Lately, I can't get these stories, these images out of my mind. They've sort of bled into my brain, and I can't seem to stop watching the news. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we would probably uh, hopefully expect it in, in films about television, but both films play with, like, the behind-the-scenes angles and sort of, like, we see news constructed, faked, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in both films right like in in war of the worlds there's moments where where iron edom's like you know wandering the streets despondent as he is half <laughs> the movie um and he'll just come across like a, a scene being staged and there's people and martians and and television camera crews but like there doesn't seem to be anyone else around like it is this really like eerie thing and mckelwee uh, even like <laughs> has his moments of like rivalry with uh, the news, which are really funny when he's trying to film people in like the aftermath of, uh, you know, this disaster. And then like the local news keeps fucking up his, his vibe and they keep coming in and stealing uh, interviews from his subjects and stuff like that. Uh, and it even goes so far to, you know, he gets featured 
uh, on the news, like area man films his life or whatever <laughs> sort of segment. Uh, and there's a great bit where, you know, the camera crew comes in his front door three times. And it's awesome to see how it like the fiction is constructed because he opens the door with the camera on them and they're not ready for that. <laughs> and then like when they do it again, like they're ready for it, you know, and then one more time for safety, like at the end. And so we even see this kind of staging, like, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. I also love in that sequence too, where he points out how the, the news cameraman immediately like bullied him out of the best yeah. shooting position. In the, room. <laughs> yeah. the guy saw the window and then immediately just like ran to the like perfect spot where the light is hitting both subjects. And I love it. You see, you see when he's filming the guy that the cameraman kind of has like a knowing like smirk, like I got you, bro. I fucking <laughs> fucked up your shot. You know, you're dealing with a news pro here, man. You yeah. Know? That's a really amazing sequence because he also is commenting on how self-aware we get when we are being interviewed. When I was thinking about my brief appearances on the news, I also had that Ross McElwee brain of they're looking for a soundbite. I need to give them a soundbite. I could obviously ramble forever about whatever, you know, I could just keep talking, but I'm, I'm on the news. I need to make this as concise. I have a list yeah, of points. This isn't the gauntlet. I need, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got, I've got key things I need to hit. Otherwise I'll have considered my brief news appearance a failure. And I also like his acknowledgement of that. What he's doing isn't even all that different in certain respects because of what he's controlling and how he edits it. Because when he is filming them entering his apartment for the third time, and he's presenting it like comedy, you know, oh, isn't this amusing? I'm going to keep saying hello to these people. And he's like, well, they'll edit it for their own purposes as I'm also editing all of this for my own purposes. You yeah. know, he's not afraid to admit that, you know, there's truth here, but this is also my fiction. This is my construction. I'm presenting this to you from my perspective. They're just presenting it from theirs and what their goals are. And I think it also, that's helpful, right? Like he's calling into question his own method and, that's like a way of just encouraging media literacy. You know, don't even take me for my word. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how he sets up the triangle of like the news, Hollywood and himself and then plays with how these things are represented in different ways. Right. And they each have their own truth. Hollywood has their truth. And he uh, covers that in a bit when he's in Santa Monica and he's like filming a Baywatch scene, which is yeah. really funny. Um but yeah, so he he sets up that. I mean, like you said, Ryan, there's even this whole detour into uh, into like him, you know, developing a, a monologue project for uh, <laughs> yeah. Miramax, you know. But I also kept thinking, like, don't do it. Miramax is like Iron Edom's independent news, fake independent, you know. Like yeah, Harvey's yeah. gonna be in there, just like destroying your film, right? Just like the boss in War of the Worlds. Yeah, and he and he 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 sort of expands on that idea, or or just sort of you know spends a bit of time philosophizing with it because he goes into this whole thing about how. You know, his career as a, quote, documentary filmmaker, right? People, he says, always ask him, like, hey, why don't you go to Hollywood and make real yeah, make movies, real movies. You know? And he says, right, like, we have a culture that perceives 
the the you know a hundred million dollar artifice of of a Hollywood movie as somehow feeling more real than something like Sherman's March, you know, like a handmade film, right? Or in this case, Six O'Clock News. That that we have it completely flipped around. That people see the polish as being professional, right? Therefore, yeah. somehow more real. And again, that ties to me back to the whole apparatus of of TV news, which which again, both films are playing with. That that if people saw a newscaster get up there in you know jeans and a t-shirt and just be like folks i'm gonna be very upfront and honest with you right now you know and just <laughs> going off script everybody would be like the newscaster's lost his mind you know or whatever right like what the hell's right. going on here i don't i don't believe this slob you know so right what do they want they want anchors who are basically just these like barbie dolls and ken dolls these news readers no offense to you know serious anchors and journalists right but like the news as it's presented on TV has this extremely formulaic high production quality and artifice that audiences then are led to believe is more truthful it's more real because of course look at all the resources behind it you know this isn't just some guy on a street corner saying the martians are taking our blood <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah they've got like like rocket launch footage and everything yeah you know? yeah. yeah they got resources behind it that's why i liked in war of the world's next century that even before the martian intervention in his news broadcast which i mean is the first scene of the movie i mean even before that it's still his show, his independent news show, is a guy wearing a wig. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, that being the base level, even before the Martians are changing his script, is super funny in that sense. He's yes. still, as he says, thank you for inviting me into your home. That's why you choose our program. He still does need to be invited into people's homes, no matter how independent his news is. So he's yes. got to wear that wig to look good. When he meets the crazy, not well, the guy's not crazy, but when he meets like the radical guy later who in the in the shelter who wants to blow up the TV station, that guy says to him, "You bullshit about freedom with the wig on and think you're free when it's off." Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a good point. I mean, it's it's a really good point because. You know, yes, obviously there is the, the, the sort of like bit of of being like, look how phony this guy is. He puts a blonde wig on, you know, and like, I mean, the actor who plays Marsh, can you can tell us the, the name of the actor? Roman Wilhelmi. Roman Wilhelmi. OK, this actor, his performance as Iron Edom is in my like easily now top 10 performances in a movie of all time. Oh like <laughs> I, I love this guy so much because like he is in the opening when it's just like him wandering down the streets of, you know, the empty streets of, of Poland, which we eventually see is also like a movie set that he's on or something like that. Right. We see like the, the fake mm -hmm. kind of building the artifice there. Um, it is just these like long shots of the most Polish miserable looking guy you've seen in your entire life. He is just so sad, so bummed out and also like extremely sweaty throughout oh, the movie. God, like he is dripping. Yeah. He's always just like sweaty and miserable. And then he gets into the studio and slaps on the blonde wig and then has this complete 
180 degree change to this like Joker-like smile as he's like reading the news and is yeah. is filled with life and energy. Witam wszystkich, którzy chcą mnie słuchać. A zakładam, że nikt was do słuchania mnie nie zmusza. Mamy dziś 28 grudnia. Do końca roku pozostało 3 dni. Do końca wieku także 3 dni. Jeżeli ktoś z was wie, ile pozostało do końca świata, niech dzwoni do nas! And then it's like, again, the, the news ends and he just rips the fucking wig off and he's just sweaty and miserable again. Like, I was just like loving that shit. But again, like, yes, there's this idea of the artifice of, oh, I'll look better with the wig. But going to that point with the crazy guy, like... I understood what he was getting at in terms of 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 really attacking Edom. That that freedom. The idea is, you know, that Edom is essentially a coward. And he wears the wig not necessarily to look good, but to hide his identity because he's afraid of facing the public in the streets for all the again. In his words, bullshit he's spitting on the news, right? Edom is terrified of people recognizing him out there. You know, he hates himself so goddamn much. Yeah, just such a miserable yeah. fuck. And just continues to hate himself more, more and more. And, and again, oh, it's yeah. like at a certain point, obviously, it's it's not really his fault what happens. Like he's... He is a stooge, but also like, yeah, they they took his wife, you know, like there's very serious stuff happening uh, that sends him down this this path, this Kafka-esque, you know, wandering around Soviet style architecture. Like it's funny, too, about the sweating, because we should mention that this film is is very cool looking, like extremely blue. People look like sickly, you know, yeah. which then when you see a guy just like constantly sweating, but like it's blue, <laughs> yeah. like it really does give you this just uh, this feeling like, I don't know, it just makes me uncomfortable. Oh, in, yeah. In, in yeah. A good way. Most people are wearing jackets. It seems yeah. a little chilly. I mean, the Martians got big, puffy, silver oh coats right. on. Yeah. This movie. Get the cat out of the bag. All time. Yeah. Like funniest depiction of Martians in any movie ever. Just these little guys in huge puffy jackets with silver painted faces and they got like little beanies on yeah. oh my goodness yeah like williams obsessed. called from the future uh and i'm pretty sure like various puff daddy and biggie videos were were stolen from war of the world's next century see and that's my thing like with this film uh i think why i loved it so much um was you know i'd never seen anything else i'd heard of this film before this was one that i'd like meant to see for a while so i was very glad when you picked it marsh um but you know at, at first i was really you know i guess expecting this 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 ultra serious you know polish like nightmare of a film and it certainly is is that mm -hmm. But but when we finally got a glimpse of the Martians, it was like a switch flipped in my head. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is also like major lols, right? And it's supposed to be that way. And and then it's just like the whole movie like just unfurled for me. And and I just I fell in love with it um because I really started to laugh a lot at the heaviness that he's obviously like playing with. Because 
how can you make this this ultra serious allegorical nightmare of a film and then have those fucking things walk in these things that everyone's supposed to be so fucking terrified of right the goddamn martian overlords and it's like them right like that's the fucking gag it's like no no way right i mean Mm -hmm. it's so so amazing yeah i really like this movie's sense of humor it's Mm. Uh, like you said, it's a very Kafkaesque film, but it also kind of reminded me of the overall tone and experience of Cemetery Man, which is a film I, I really love, mm-hmm. where you're watching this sad guy kind of wander through this surreal odyssey, and he's also really horny, and he's picking up all of these characters along the way that you think are just one-offs, and then they like come back later in the film. There, there are so many characters that eat him like encounters that you think are like the guy, the registration guy who's registering his blood type and getting him his new Martian identity, personal identification cards. You Mm. think that guy's just like, Oh, he's just in that scene. And then they come back later and it feels as though they've gone through some sort of, you know, absurdist transformation. And all of this is affecting them as well. Their minds are melting. And I, I think that overall effect was very nice because it did invite for a lot of comedy throughout which wasn't expected when you started i did kind of think it was going to be a more like cool edged straightforward science fiction film and then there are yeah there's laughs along the way which makes everything else hit harder it's a nice blend yeah it's funny too because now that i watched you know the other ones i i do think they kind of escalate in their humor uh, and I think, of course, you know, part of the film is also like it's a satire of Polish bureaucracy, of quote communist style bureaucracy, right? All these petty little tyrants, and the you know the guy from Water the Waterworks, and you know all this stuff about like yeah, getting the the proof of friendship and and all that stuff, right? It's fucking hilarious, right? The comic stuff is is inherent, and I think he recognizes that. And when you guys watch like the end of Civilization, the next movie, uh, it's even funny, more explicitly funny, you know, because mm-hmm. there's he just creates yeah these very memorable, uh, quirky characters. I mean, there's a character in in the end of Civilization that's like, uh, in the best terms, uh, a character Andy would write. It's like. The whole film is a parable about like, you know, it's the future and all these people are in this dome. And if they go outside, they die. They're waiting for the ark, which was just a fiction that the guys who were in charge created to, you know, keep order in this dome. Keep everybody from chopping each other up. And (laughs) like, you know, it's about like the middle manager of this entire situation. And like his higher up is just this like deranged admiral who's playing like uh, tabletop military games the whole time. Yeah, he's like playing his own personal like demented game of Axis and Allies. Like it's that kind of shit, you know, and I'm glad you guys... Uh, thought it was funny because yeah it does have that that you you know again as you're brought into it it is like very dour you know but it's it's such a funny film i think like when it gets to when he walks in on like the your blood is wanted like friendship society like and you get that tableau of those like weirdos sitting at the table yeah uh it's like all right yes this is fucking this is weird it it was it was like in in the in a good way in for me also like invoking like what's what's like best for me in like Terry Gilliam's kind of work and that sure. similar tone like like Brazil you know if you think about Brazil that again like gray miserableism that you see everywhere that is just so yes like 
bleak that you have to laugh. Like if you don't laugh, then yeah, it's it's the worst movie you've ever seen in your life. You know? I, I learned too that then we're in Avalon territory, right, Ryan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like Avalon needed more laughs, right? Yeah, and totally. Yeah. And to be even halfway as visually inspired as uh, War of the Worlds Next Century. Yes. <laughs> I suppose it wouldn't surprise you then. You know, I learned uh, Shulkin's uh, trinity of, of masters is Eisenstein, Fellini, Godard. So, Absolutely. Uh, that's, the, that's... Yeah, you see the Fellini uh, in these like clowns that are constantly appearing, reappearing. Now they're wearing SWAT, a SWAT uniform for some reason. You know, yeah. like there's all this shape shifting. Yeah. There's definitely no shortage, of course, of quirky, shape-shifting, goofy characters in 6 o'clock news. Because, again, we're talking about let the cat out of the bag for the Martians. We got to talk about Ross McElwee's landlord. Can't stop thinking about that guy. (laughs) Barry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, is that his name, Barry? Yeah. Yeah, Ross McElwee's landlord, Barry, lives down the hall in the neighboring apartment and... He has 10 television sets in his home, many of them stacked on top of each other, and he has this insane tape deck system where he's simultaneously recording all these broadcasts. How many Twilight Zones do you have? I have all of the new Twilight Zones. I probably have like, I don't know, maybe 70%, 75% of the old ones. Really? Yeah. The old Alfred Hitchcock thing, mm. Twilight Zone. And Star Trek. Oh, uh, see, here, see here are my clippings. And then on the back, on this thing, I put the title. And on the mm-hmm. on the back, I cut up the little synopsis from TV Guide. And this is when the film really felt like an episode of How To with John Wilson. Because Ross is just showing interest in what his landlord is doing. And we're getting... It's one of those things. If you just show interest in something that this odd thing that someone's into, they'll likely tell you a great deal yeah. about it. And the mania comes pouring out. Yeah, it's just, yeah, just the <laughs> flood of the mania. And this guy, he's recording thousands of hours, right? He's he's that type that you've kind of heard about. And he, what I love, though, was the archival element to it, like a few steps he took to advance that, where he was yeah. putting the TV guide clipping in there uh, along with other materials and it's funny because so much of it he hasn't even seen and I like when he's like opening the tapes pulling one up by example reading a description and just looking at McKelly and saying like "Ooh, that sounds crazy you know but he hasn't watched it and of course you watch this guy and all you can think of is what does it do to you when something like DVR comes along or just some (laughs) form of technology that renders so many hours of your work and labor entirely obsolete. Well, from that point on, but oh. not it's not like the past work is obsolete, you know. Sure. Yeah. That's true. But I guess even if you keep going even farther, then of course all of this stuff is just archived and available and so is it much of, Well, no, that's true. The new stuff definitely not. I mean, he's no. clearly has an archive of something. So I guess it wouldn't be entirely demoralizing. Yeah, dude, you know Alex Fucre's dad has every Letterman ever on VHS. 
So wow. like that's yeah, that's clearly not available, just readily available everywhere. Yeah. You know, I guess I was thinking more like yeah, he's recording all the Twilight Zones, right? And I'm thinking yeah, like I, yeah, I, I, got, uh, I got the whole box set yeah. at home. Right. He's only got seventy five percent that he's caught taped. You know? <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that guy, and of course, like one of the great reveals is he just interrupts that t- television interview we were just describing when the TV crew goes into McKelvey's apartment three times in the midst of their conversation, his landlord shows up wearing like a TV helmet with TV sunglasses and other like little bits and pieces. And I love McKelvey's reaction, which was, We people in television love to meet people like you, Barry. Well, I'm in television too. I know. Figuratively. In a way that we could never imagine. At last, the perfect soundbite. <laughs> you know, here's yeah. the character they were hoping for when they came to talk to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I loved when he made the dude. The guy had perfect fucking sitcom timing too, yeah. right? Because then he had the great line. What did he say? Oh, I'm I'm into TV myself. <laughs> <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. That guy was amazing. I'm glad you brought him up, Ryan, because, like, I, I like, uh, you know, I, I fucking cracked up when, too, like, he's going through that whole archival system, and I'm thinking, wow, this is, like, crazy, and, like, what's the purpose of this? And I was like, well, I guess, you know, it'd be great if you wanted to watch something, you could talk to him, and and, and McElwee does ask him, like, well, do you lend this stuff out? And he goes, what? To a select few. Like, he's very oh, particular. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, That's you when know? he was going, like, full Greg Turkington, Victorville film archive mode. Only a select <laughs> few can see these tapes. <laughs> yeah. And if anything, I imagine this guy, like, if he's ever lending a tape, like, makes a duplicate. You know? Has the primary source kept in his home. And the great implication in that question is, of course... That McKelvey is not one of the select few who gets no. access to the tapes. Absolutely <laughs> not. I wonder if his landlord has since digitized many of those tapes. I hope so. I wonder how he pivoted. Yeah, that's one of those, you know, oftentimes you watch a doc and you walk away thinking, ah, where are they now? This was the really intensely the most in a long time after finishing a doc where I was like, where is this guy now? How much has his life changed? from technology yeah and there's a lot of characters you know i was wondering who you were going to bring up obviously barry is a great choice but i like that when we get like the hurricane hugo segment at the beginning uh where he goes to like find charlene and reconnect with her and he immediately meets this like extremely overzealous uh like government agency uh disaster guy who keeps very flippantly referring to all the destruction as like various like war zones he's been to <laughs> and explosion like when he yeah. sees like a trailer park destroyed he's like Beirut I was in Beirut a few years back and this, this whole city looks like a Beirut. You got your Shiite Muslims over here, and you get your Christians on one side. It's just a wonder that people aren't shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. That's the only difference. As far as the damage, it looks like this could have been about 15 RPGs going in here. Mm-hmm. And they talk about Northern Ireland. This is it. This is an American Beirut right now. Uh, that guy was killing me. He was so fucking funny. Looks like Hamburg, Germany, 1945. <laughs> He's just like being attacked by bees throughout all of his interviews. Oh, dude, yeah. And they talk about how there's like grapefruit-sized balls of fire ants that have <laughs> the like... ant balls? Oh, my oh. God, dude. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I had to look this shit up, you know? I was like, what the fuck's Hurricane Hugo? Apparently, it was, like, insanely bad. Like, the worst hurricane in 80 years or something. It was, like, historic when it happened. Well, I know? mean, even from the footage that he shows in the in his movie. I mean, yeah. it looked, it, it looked crazy. down, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that, the bridge just, like, uh, twisted like a pretzel. I mean, it was uh, harrowing, really. Yeah, I was really, I was really struck by that. It was one of those things that helped from his style that probably wouldn't have been as well communicated by the six o'clock news because he was able to spend so much time. He shows us that glimpse of the bridge being destroyed from the six o'clock news because throughout Ross is like filming his TV and we get to see the news representations of so many of these events. In his kitsch motels. Yeah, exactly. But when he finally gets there, that's when it clicked for me. I'm like, man. Right, the the bridge is down. They're not letting people on the island. The military and the disaster relief is preventing people from returning to their homes because the structures are unstable. But then think about all those people that they're like, well, our, you know, we want to get there before it rains again, because who knows? Some of our stuff might be okay. Because that's why Charlene wants to go back. She has this huge file cabinet with all her work that she's covered in plastic. And by the way, sorry, can I just interject about her filing cabinet? Because this is something you learn in previous McElwee documentaries, is that she corresponded with Ezra Pound uh, and had a relationship with him. And she has like famous letters that she sells for money. Like she used to sell for money from time, like scans of them because she had a personal relationship with pound. Wow. Uh, wow. And I think some other poets, she also wrote to like famous living poets in the like sixties or seventies or eighties or whatever. That makes sense. Cause I, I, I was thinking like, what is this? A bunch of like, you know, the fifth graders poems in here. It's some priceless <laughs> stuff. Like she's a yeah. teacher, right? Like, yeah. Come on, like, you know? yeah. And maybe some of her poetry, but like she, literally has like valuable poetry documents that are all now i believe like at the north north carolina university or something sure, you know like yeah. it's like a real archive that she was hoping wasn't destroyed yeah know? that was a really moving scene because yeah when they first show up you really think it's it's not gonna look good because they get there and they say yeah this used to be asphalt and now it's a beach this whole oh, street yeah. and then she goes in and she freaks out because yeah her roof is gone but then was it her son <laughs> Is that yeah. who was with her? Yeah, and he's like, oh, but look, your filing cabinet, like, it worked. What well, you did, and it was, none of it was wet. None of the ink was even running. Yeah, small miracles. Yeah. Love that son, too. These series of characters that you'll never forget. The son who puts the perfume on a rag because he's like a pro at How to clean out a refrigerator of- <laughs> during a <laughs> yeah. disaster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you learn a lot, too. Just great strategy in this movie. <laughs> What's really cool in that sequence is to me, again, like thinking back on some of those ideas, you know, that I, I initially started with, with um, the the piece by Samuel Weber on, on this like strange television experience uh, is, you know, again, this idea, you know, that Weber brings up is that, you know, what does television seek to overcome? And he says, you know, it presents itself as as helping us overcome the limitations of our bodies, right? That there are these things, these events that take place in the world, and and we certainly can't be there in person, but here's your buddy TV to magically teleport you there, to bring you there. But again, in this very mediated, very constructed way, you're not actually there, but television says 
you're there, right? You're here. You're on the scene. You're with us. And so many news uh, broadcasts present that, you know? But what is really great about this is it's sort of like... (laughs) In spite of him getting like this TV brain and and going through this and watching all this TV news, he says, now fuck that. I'm going to take my body to these places. Yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna just go inside going to... the TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like he, he goes like, hold my beer. Like I'm going to get there. And then the, the rest of the movie becomes not just this trip to to uh, to the Carolinas, but but across country in a few other situations you know he looks at other situations and and other events and then goes well shit i'm gonna hop in the car and drive there myself right i mean isn't the next sequence where he goes to or i guess just later in the film where he drives all the way to it's arizona right yeah. he goes to arizona yeah the, the one in the middle is when he goes to jackson mississippi to visit the the man whose wife was was killed over forty four dollars in a robbery oh. in her shop. Yeah, the businessman. Right, the businessman. Stephen Im is yeah. that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He starts seeing these news broadcasts, and then and then he's sort of like, I have to go. I have to go to this place to be there to to get into the story myself to find out more. Yeah. Yeah, and I was getting gauntlet flashbacks, right? Because he goes to, you know, this sort of, like, tornado alley slash, like, heavy rain situation that reminded me of Weather Diary, where he's like, I can't even go outside today. It's, like, raining (laughs) too hard, you know? Like, big-time Kuchar moment. But he also gets the the noble idea to become, like, a a fire chaser uh, at one point. And this is, like, one of the, the dangling threads of the film that, like, doesn't really come together except in a sardonic very funny way is he goes to like sequoia uh, national park mm-hmm. right ryan yeah, uh, yeah and there's like th- these out of control fires and he's like i'm gonna go film like brave people confronting this stuff you know and then he's like gets stuck with this like philosophizing forest ranger as they walk for like hours and hours. who seems to get him like just lost yes. <laughs> you know, they uh, there and back yeah. they get lost for five hours he says on the way back uh, uh, but he does make a great joke where he's like, of course, I had to get like the forest ranger from like the metaphysical unit yeah. of the of the squad, <laughs> you know, because this guy's just like going off and not really giving him what he what he was looking for in that situation. Things happen by chance in forest fires. Sometimes one tree is, is spared. That one tree will provide seed for a new forest. The rest are, are uh, the rest are burned in the fire. Hmm. Uh, it's uncanny. Fire really doesn't know any rules. It behaves, but sometimes it defies its own behavior. Yeah, and yet some very, very beautiful thoughts about yes. nature. And again, like a callback to to his experience with Charlene, where, you know, this 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 Forest Service guy is like, you know, the amazing thing about a forest fire is it's it's so unpredictable and, and it it defies physics, it defies our understanding of 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 what should happen that that an entire area could be swept over by fire and yet one tree remains totally untouched by the flames in the middle of like a charred landscape and again it goes back to her house you know this this entire area seems to be leveled but her house minus the roof 
is still standing miraculously, seemingly, by, by these events. And, and again, going back to this idea of tragedy in the news and in the world, right? There's all these violent events, but, but there's no pattern to so many of them. It just happens. What's the difference between you or me? And this is where, again, in his kind of personal doc mode, he then also reflects on his brother's tragic accident. He specifically says something like, the odds of my brother being killed by this motorboat while swimming in the lake. He, he tells us his, his brother at a very young age was, was struck by a motorboat while swimming in the lake and, and killed. And he's like, the size of the lake and where my brother was for this boat to just hit him, it makes no sense, right? But that's, that's the whole sort of wild, unpredictable nature of nature, of life, of, of events, of things that happen to us. And that's why I also kind of dug the, that he would sort of, in each of these people he would go visit, you know, uh, the various news stories that he would, he would sort of dive into and, and explore much deeper and much further than the television news did, how so many of them would then come to this this reflection on their tragedy in relation to their belief in God, yes. right? How do we equate this tragedy with God? And what's what's so fascinating is how each person responds and has these very different takes, right? We mentioned the Korean man whose wife was murdered. And, you know, when he finally gets him to sort of open up, because really he wants him to talk about the murder, but he's just talking about all of his businesses yeah. he owns. You Capitalism know? therapy. Yeah, he's like showing <laughs> off his new trucks, you know, yeah, like my yeah. shiny red truck. And dude, by the way, again, you talk about characters we love. My other favorite character was Mr. Joe, uh, Stephen M's chauffeur, who oh, yeah. he, he briefly mentions as uh, his, his like limo driver who just listens to very softly, like very low volume heavy metal while he's driving oh, yeah. him around. <laughs> I love that guy. But like, you know, when he finally gets Steven to open up about his his trauma, his tragedy, you know, and he was presented in the footage as being a very religious man. They go to a Korean language, I think Catholic service and and he's a man of God. But then when he thinks, I'm assuming he thinks that the camera's off or whatever, you know, he's sitting there in the car and he's just like, fuck God. How do you believe in God after that shit? You know? And I think he specifically says to me after this, it shows me that God is out of control, you know, but there are others who go, man, it strengthened my belief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's actually something interesting. Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote about that in an essay. That's pretty good about the movie and in, in classic Rosenbaum style where, he shows his love for the film by kind of attacking it throughout, you know? He's not just, like, trying to... myself. <laughs> totally, yeah. He's, like, not just trying to sing his praises. And he, he has this paragraph where he says, but these and other victims in the film are generally too busy attending to their lives to ruminate much on the meaning of their fates. So McElwee has to wait around for them to deliver these conclusions on camera, befriending them in the process. He even accompanies Im and Pena to church, where he goes and finds himself a praying woman who he doesn't know, and I start to wonder if his obtrusiveness is any different from that of the TV crews. 
I'm reminded of Orson Welles' suggestion in an interview that filming the act of prayer was potentially as obscene as filming the act of sex. Here it functions as a mechanism for pumping meaning into a movie that has nothing to do with the woman, which makes it feel immensely exploitative. <laughs> which is intense, because I also kind of felt that too, and I, I think it's an interesting moment. This is, again, jumping to the end, but that thread of religion is he does note, like, I keep finding myself in a church. I keep filming all these church services, and that was my first job in film. Like, for his church, he would film some of the services. He would do this and that, videography for the church. And he's like, and here I am. I'm filming this woman completely lost in prayer. She's, like, looking at a statue of, like, St. Francis or someone. And he's like, and she doesn't even realize I'm there. And his camera's getting closer and closer. He's zooming, but he's also, like, close. And, yeah, I actually thought the same thing. And I, I'm not trying to, like, take McElwee to court or anything, but I was like, yeah, okay, now it is blurring. Like, this feels like the TV news, just capturing someone in a very private moment. All of a sudden, they are unwittingly having their own home movie made for them. Ryan? Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's be really fair, right? Could you imagine Kaveh in that situation? (laughs) You want to talk about intrusive? Holy shit. Yeah. Miguel, we very gentle and very kind uh, in this filming. This was a great antidote for me, though, Ryan. Again, as you mentioned, like, (laughs) Ryan, the personal doc thing for being like, all right, this, now this guy, I'd hang out with this guy, you know, I'd let this guy bring a camera into my home, you know, whereas Kave, I would have fucking kicked him out after 10 minutes, probably. Holy shit. Totally. Yeah. 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 No kidding. But yeah, I think that the whole thread with religion is really interesting in the context of all the scenes we've just been describing, because I too was really struck by this idea of how we interpret tragedy when we see things on the news, how much meaning we apply to our own lives and how we understand it in relation to other people, and just his idea about how chaos theory relates to these things. When we see the trailer homes where a storm blew through, how come these homes were destroyed and the one right next door was totally untouched? Why is there this single tree in the midst of a forest fire that does keep growing and that it didn't suffer the scourge of of burns and i think that metaphysical angle was like really nice because it was studying in a way that you would expect from someone who would of course then be eventually become like a harvard professor but i also felt like it was really grounded in the the scenes he was reacting to which i just enjoyed about the construction of this film and yeah i think about that too when you're watching the news and you think like god why is this happening to them well this could never happen to me but also why didn't it happen to me it still can Who's in control? Is there God? What is chance? What's fate? I mean, everything, right? It's all the questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, and, you know, if we're talking about God, in, in the case of War of the Worlds, uh, he also has a, a strange confrontation <laughs> in, a, uh, in a moment of prayer, right? In a moment of, of religious weakness, perhaps, I guess, in his case, as he's losing his grasp of of why things are happening, where he goes into a, a church, right, at a certain point and, and enters the confession booth. But uh, who does he find? Uh, well, he delivers a really long, like, monologue. And then, right. who does he find? It's himself, right? right? Isn't it on a well, TV? It's, I, it's, it's, yeah, with the wig. It's, uh, you know... News, Iron Edom, video, Videodrome style in the confessional booth. Yeah. yeah. 
And he's like making fun of him, right? I, I feel I'm trying to remember exactly what his TV version says, but it felt like a Martian creation, right? It didn't seem like the suggestion was it was a clip out of context, but that it was almost as though they could manufacture his image or there was some sort of Martian magic involved with having this TV confessional dupe doppelganger of himself, like mocking him for asking advice on how to pray because isn't that sort of what he's asking for in the booth he's like teach me how to pray yeah well i think the martians and their collaborators have a very robust sort of production setup i mean it's uh you know they set up like a pavilion in the middle of town where they have televisions and loudspeakers so they can like pump that shit all day long but what really struck me is that during the first broadcast where he's like talking about the martians uh at the end uh they they throw it to a, a brand new music video, the instant glue, Ode to Martian, and it's amazing. <laughs> but the fact that they have like a prepackaged song, a pro Martian song, uh, was just cracking me up. Mamiusz najnowszą piosenkę zespołu, the instant glue. Oda do Marsjanina! banger of a song and also the kind that kind of gnaws at your brain because of the frequency with which they play it but i I like that that's again the fake movie song right even if maybe this was a an actual pop song from the era uh to me it will feel i think it was like a true disservice that they did not translate that song because i bet in the subtitles i bet that song is funny and has some like good zingers about the martians if it was in fact written for this film. Totally. <laughs> well, what was interesting, though, is that there is a lot of English in the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was the lo- language of the colonizers, which, like, further confuses the, me- like, the allegorical stuff going on. Right, right. Because, like, all the signs around are all written in English. Yeah. Because that's what they say. They say, to like, the Martians are, are so smart that they can understand our language, and if you want to com- communicate with them, talk to them in English. <laughs> yeah. That's like so weird. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad in your intro when you called out like, yeah, this is obviously an allegory and it's a very thinly veiled allegory, but it's still kind of a confusing allegory. Cause I was trying to figure out, I'm like, okay, was this, were all those signs in English perhaps for some overseas market practical purposes? Like if they're going to default to a, a language that's written, it avoids them having to write subtitles because they hope, a lot of people will understand it in English, but I, I, I kind of quickly threw that in the, in the bin because, yeah, to me, it almost felt like then they were looping the West into this and the idea of yeah. the Martians aligning themselves well, more with the West. But that's their way. That's the way for the director to, you know, and, and he wasn't obviously successful, right? Elude the Polish Soviet 
authorities because you know he has to sort of present this is this isn't about the the goddamn soviets this isn't about the russians just suddenly one day showing up and being like right yeah, no. poland's ours now you know <laughs> like because that's very much what he's is referring to was was you know the it's yes as much as it is about this like moment of of you know the the solidarity movement building up like the idea of the martians appearing is is long rooted in polish history of various countries just sort of one day rolling in and oh, being we've like, seen the deluge yes you've seen the deluge yeah <laughs> Saw those mustachioed I mean, swedes marching oh, yeah. through the fields <laughs> yeah you know? there's a long history of Poland being occupied by by a new regime, you know, the Swedes, the Germans, the Russians, several times over. The CIA. The CIA, yeah, sure. You know, and again, that's where it's, it is this, to me, this like great rallying cry for like Polish independence uh, from the West, from Germans, from Russians, from, from whoever. And of course, it's sort of like very cynical take on that reality of whether or not that's that's going to happen, which is where like the true nightmare for him really begins. It isn't it isn't when the Martians show up, but when they announce that they're leaving, the things really seem to go bad for him. You know, <laughs> he said in an interview that when he started writing the war of the worlds, he wrote the first 12 pages as a straightforward allegory of the Soviet invasion and then realized that this was a mistake and started over and that like he wanted it to, and I think achieves a, a universality like West East capitalist communist, like watch this film. Do you not recognize the world that we live in with lying, manipulative media, staged events, you know, all this stuff. Like mm -hmm. it's all there for anyone who wants it. Yeah. You know, new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These patterns aren't specific to just one incident. Right. Yeah. And I mean, especially if you just take it broadly as again, making reality, through the medium of television, and of course that slogan for that television station, reality, we, we make it, we create it, or whatever it yeah. says. In English. In English, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's like, of course, that's the number one critique of TV, but it's also just like the truth, because it is creating reality. Reality eventually adapts to what TV is representing, and that's sort of what's happening here, because his whole life becomes he has a new reality created for himself that he has to adhere to because people keep changing things based on what his script is going to be how he's going to play a part in all of this and then subverts it even further and goes in opposite directions constantly throughout the film because mm -hmm. again like th th to me this is like a also like a uh you know a beautiful and and you know i use that in the aesthetic way you know something really ugly and gross can be can be beautiful right but this is a, a beautiful exploration of this this uh you know the tragedy of existing in like an inverted totalitarian society and that's what he's sort of playing with here there there isn't this this clear dictator there isn't this this you know stalin or hitler or or reagan like figure where you feel like oh if you if you just get rid of this one person then then everything will will overturn right the one figure is is the 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 
the cause of all this, you know? The, his problem is that, that no one, there's no one to point to. Obviously, there are the Martians, but but who are the fucking Martians? What do they want? What do they stand for? And there's no sense of, you know, well, if we can just get rid of this, everything is solved, you know? The problem isn't with the Martians. The problem is with the society, which has seemingly just allowed the Martians to just do whatever the fuck they want. And then not only that, but but create news programs celebrating them. And again, all these things we've described, the friendships love law. Yeah. Yeah. Martians <laughs> love law. Iconic, dude. Yeah, of course. Of course they, they do. You know, because all things considered, how much do we even really learn about the Martians? They love law and they want our blood. Were yep, there yes. other like details of their master plans that we're privy to? It's Not still really, obscured right? from us. And, and I, look, I'm going to say it right out. I've seen this film twice now, and I don't know if the Martians are even real. Exactly. Sure, you sure. know, I mean, just flat out, <laughs> it's kind of obvious the way the film concludes and, and proceeds. You know, the Martians leave at a certain point, and then like the same TV people are are pushing the opposite line mm-hmm. um, and reestablishing power and like new ideologies or whatever. But yeah, like they might just be com- a complete fabrication, a la. Orson Welles, sure. you know, or whatever, yeah. right? Like, is yeah. F is F for is M for fake here? Yeah. <laughs> M for made up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and again, this idea of like TV news overtaking your sense of the real, this thing at a distance. Like, oh, you watched a program showing you rockets landing. Did you see the rockets land? Or did you just watch the TV program that said, look at these rockets landing, there's Martians on board, and then suddenly someone's telling you to go register somewhere, you know? And and yes, I think there's an ambiguity here that is being played with of what can you believe and, and what can you trust and how much of it is manufactured. Because as much as we do sort of believe it when we're watching the film, like, oh, yeah, this is a science fiction movie. The Martians are here. As you mentioned earlier, Marsh, we suddenly come across scenes where the Martians aren't killing people. It's being staged, right? Or maybe it's being real I, maybe things are happening or maybe the fucking cops are doing all this shit right like who is at it oh i mean there are a few points where again like he's he's also suggesting yes there are freakish martians for example when he finally like snaps oh yeah and, and brains one of them with a pipe dude and like again dude the the shot of like Clearly, what's just like a little like mannequin doll that like slides across the bathroom floor. Was... Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. guess if you need any evidence from this film, when you say Marsh, like I don't even know a hundred percent whether the Martians are real. I think the gory special effect of the Martian having like this balloon sack in his head that was split open, kind of inflating and pulsating to me kind of made it suggest like yeah these guys their organs are different than ours I agree 
However, he's also like having a psychotic he's break losing in his the, mind. Ba- in the oh, bathroom, you know. Totally. So like, whatever. Yeah, he uh, confronted yeah. himself, himself on TV. On TV. And... He saw yeah. himself on TV in the church. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's going nuts. Right. He's yeah. sweating so much. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting too because uh, everyone, of course, now you know all these great science fiction films. He didn't consider himself. Uh, a science fiction director, even though that's like primarily what he did in this productive 80s period. Uh, and he said, uh, never never considered myself a director of science fiction films. My films are socio-psychological, perhaps even social. Sure. So again, he's thinking about it, yeah, from that angle. And I think to what you said, Andy, I really liked what you said about how like there really isn't... Um, you know, this like heavy hand of, of a police state. Like there's comical moments where like the cops burst in and stuff, but like by and large, yeah, it's more of a, of a threatening atmosphere and a threatening aura. Right. And it really reminded me in that sense of like Fritz Lang and film noir and that more thing. And I, and I heard him or read him say, you know, he was thinking more like noir, more like Maltese Falcon. This guy's like, where's my wife? And that really is. He's like, where's my wife for 90 minutes. And through that, yeah, he's proceeding through this kind of like detective kind of thing where he learns basically nothing. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And again, like the, the, what, what becomes like not an indictment of this like regime or this apparatus, but, uh, 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 a, a sort of a, a attack on the people on complacency on how easy it is for people to just then cower. Right. And there are multiple times where characters will talk about that, including the, the, uh, the attorney from the firm of bonus and bonus. Right. He's just basically <laughs> like, Hey man, like I'm just like everybody else. We're all just fucking cowards. We're terrified. We, and we don't know why, but we're scared. Right. We're so fucking scared because again, the point of him, snapping and finally like braining this Martian is like, it's like the question, like, look at these are the Martians. We're terrified of why don't we all just kick their asses? You know, like everyone seems to be helping them out. They can't even like get up on the back of the truck without a boost, you know, like (laughs) just smash them up. But no one does. No one will. And even at the very beginning of the film, as you mentioned, when, when his, you know, apparatchik boss like hands him the script or whatever, this like huge, yes, Fellini-esque balloon man who runs the news organization, you know, he storms into his office and is just kind of like, it's bullshit that you're, you're, you know, infecting Iron Edom's independent news with this kind of control. And his boss just sits there and goes, read the news however the fuck you want it. Don't read my script. Do it. Go. Prove, prove, prove how tough yeah. you are. So you're li- it's live. You can say whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> you're, you're fucking do it. And there's like multiple times where his boss is like, do it, bitch. Like, and he's like laughing at him because he's like, you're a coward too, you piece of shit. You have this superiority. Again, you know, the wig on versus the wig off, right? When the wig's on, he's full of fucking shit, you know? And then he takes the wig off and he thinks he's somehow this, this, you know, this, uh, this champion of justice, but like, dude, like prove it, show us, lead us, you know? And he, and he can't. And then even in the final moment when he does go like, all right, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him at the big live, like friendship yeah. rally and dreams live hall. at the dream house. Yeah. yeah. Like, 
it's like it's too late, right? It's like it's it comes out so uh, so impotent at that point, and you see that reaction of the crowd. He gets fucking booed for it. Sprzedacie godność, sprzedacie uczciwość, by kupić większy telewizor, by dostać jakiś marny ochłap władzy. Każdy z was chce rządzić i sam. And even worse, he gets edited onto the news. He gets clipped out of context, you know, in like a McKelly moment of breaking it down. It's like, yeah, he, he addresses this live audience who doesn't really give a shit that he's now like, you know, changed his tune about all of this. They don't care at all. And then we see on TV, yeah, he's clipped completely out of context later. So it's like one failure after the other. And there's, you know, it reminded me, of course, of all of our jokes and, and talks about Watkins, right? Because when he confronts the boss behind, uh, you know, behind the curtain uh, at the live event, it's like, you can't, you can't, you can't give this speech. Like, it's all been arranged. Yeah. It's this live television. It's all been arranged, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, cracking up, dude. I love how all of these like external pressures on this perpetually sweating man kind of culminate in a really nice moment where there's that woman on the street that's barking at him and he can't help but just barf all over himself. Oh yeah. <laughs> dude, I I I cackled in that yeah. moment. I, I laughed so hard. Outstanding moment. Cause it just it's like it's so perfect with the design of that street. You know, and that atmosphere that's created with those blue tints, with the garbage, the wind, the smoke. And she's so gross. What she's like doing with her tongue, she's going like. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, God, I wanted to barf, dude. I felt it. And then, of course, he's just like. (laughs) (laughs) What a fucking sense of humor on this guy. It was like, oh, man, I was dying for that moment. Yeah, I mean, because you're right, you know, when Marsh, when you described it as like Kafka-esque, and that was certainly like uh, what I kept coming back to, you know, like... It's like the trial. The trial. Ultimately. The the castle, you know, it's a guy looking around for an answer, and everywhere he goes, it's just somebody being like, the answer's over there, man, like, it's not over here, like, and by the way, you didn't get the form stamped, you know, (laughs) like, you gotta go back over there. Oh, you got 614. That's a good low number on your friendship tag, which we should probably describe for our viewers who haven't seen the movie is like they just fucking like tag you like an animal. They pierce your ear with this like tagged number. And that that is your 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 proof of friendship. And it's good to have a low number, I guess. So, yep. Meanwhile, on TV, he's just getting, yeah, he's just getting destroyed, right? Like, his boss goes on TV. <laughs> he's like, we won't forget the people like Iron Edom who disgraced the name of humanity with collaboration. Yeah, 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 because that's the point, right? It's like that he then... He's the fall guy. He becomes the fall guy, right? Again, it was all arranged. It was all set up. Because at the end of the day, and this is, again, this this point that we were discussing earlier of, like, you know, where does this film stand? It's, it's not just about the Soviets. It's about, like, a regime that is internal that will, will accept a sort of, like, you know, again, inverted totalitarianism above it, you know? Because they're just glad to now have some, some new structure, some new order that they can now turn this whole media... 
uh, circus towards, right? And like, hey, we're your heroes after all, TV news. Let's forget about all of that. TV news is the, in the words of Paul Virilio, the aesthetics of disappearance. It doesn't matter what happened then. What happens is what's going on now and what we're saying in this particular moment on the new better news, which is the program that replaces Iron Edom's independent yeah. news. Yeah. Iron Edom said passivity was a virtue, but I'm saying activity is a virtue. Yes. You know, get his ass. Yeah, now that the Martians have left. And it's, you know, it's, again, it, everything he says is so prophetic, even when it's turned around on himself through the way that the news channel ends up editing it, when he mentions, you know, you look at people on the news and you feel absolved. But TV is created in your image. And I think that that relates to all of these threads about how that, that distance and that nearness, it's created in our image. And then, of course, him saying, you know, they, they try to present him as this person that says being passive is a virtue and adhering to the Martians. And then all of a sudden, people feel absolved even though they were the ones that were being passive and adhering to the world that the Martians were setting up, right? Oh, yeah. TV's Look, created I, in their image. Yeah, I watched over 800 minutes of Marcelo Full's occupation documentaries this summer, and people love to lie uh, and absolve themselves of things that happened, especially in uh, these kinds of situations. I mean, yeah. Crazy yeah. connection. I just I was recalling a lot of uh, yeah interviewees from those Ophel's films and the sort of like obfuscations going on here. Sure. Well, dude, and go go back to a film we watched earlier in in our you know podcast history, Videograms of a Revolution, which is a a film that communicates a lot with what is going on in this film. The passing of this sort of you know one order to the next, and what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening behind the camera, what's happening in front of the camera. I mean, remember that one scene where there's there's like this guy that, uh, I, I'm sort of forgetting some of the context behind it, but he's sort of like talking about the openness and, and he's got all those guys and then they're like, okay, we gotta go into a separate room and the TV cameras can't come in the room for a minute, right? And they have to go like negotiate away from the cameras, which they were promising was going to be so transparent for everyone, you know? It's It's like, what do we see and what don't we see? What we don't see is is where the real events are taking place, not instant glue performing live or, you know. But goddamn, everyone, you know, yeah. if, that, if I had a seven-inch of that instant glue single. Well, I mean, I dude, the music like, throughout the film, yeah, the score even great was score. awesome. Very unsettling synthesizers for the most part, but then worked in with some more diegetic stuff. Yeah. Early 80s synths, man, they just, they hit fucking different. Dude. You know, on the other hand, uh, Ross McElwee certainly uh, doesn't find any order, right? Just people grasping at, at their various interpretations, like uh, Salvador Pena, the guy that uh, got caught in the parking garage during the Los Angeles earthquake and basically should be dead, but was miraculously rescued. Uh, and it strengthened his belief in God, right? The opposite of what happened to the Korean businessman you guys were talking about earlier, right? So we see these diverging reactions, you know, especially with faith, right? Obviously when shitty things happen, people are, people are like, 
who's what's God, you know? Right. And then, and then when, yes, yeah, something like uh, a miracle like this or whatever, even though as McKelvey points out, is it a miracle? The guy got crushed in a parking garage. There are a lot of other parking garages that were fine, you yeah. know? Um, and, and also he, points out like, you know, this dude just came from El Salvador, you know? Well, <laughs> like, yes. that's And that's what I was getting to. That's what I was getting to because I really do like how two of the subjects of the film are immigrants. And then they also become these like mini meditations on the American dream. We have a guy that's come from Korea, which, of course, historically quite a rep- quite a repressive sort of militaristic regime. A lot of immigrants came here and this guy became very, very successful. And we hear like the beautiful Horatio Alger story. Like I had 50 bucks in my pocket. Now I have six million, you know, right. and like the meditation on that where it's like and now I'm here and my wife was murdered for no reason. Like, And he replaced her with Miss Korea 1974. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And she seemed quite nice, you know, and he's got daughters. And yeah, I mean, it's this it's this amazing segment. And then we get to to Salvador. And like you were, you were saying, Andy, then it's like, well, uh, he came to America because, well, things aren't going great in El Salvador because of like the U.S. backed, <laughs> uh, you know, war crimes regime or whatever. I mean, just getting all that even out like into the film i think is is a miracle in itself it allows it to become such a more complex meditation it's not just like him going around being like look at look at this violence this is crazy i got to like ask these people about it but right. it becomes about so much more than that and it's just yeah becoming so enamored with the contradictions in life because you have the man who went 50 dollars in his pocket now he's got six million he's got a new wife thinks you know he's buying into the religion of capitalism of the united states and here's salvador who's working 80 hours a week so he can just barely afford to provide for six other family members in el salvador he's crushed in a parking garage during an earthquake the only reason he didn't strangle himself to death while suffering from the pain of the collapsed car is because only one of his hands was free he says i would if i was in so much pain i would have killed myself if both of my hands were free and i would have tried to strangle myself and yet he walks away from that with a stronger belief in god and spends all his time reading religious literature you wonder about how we react to tragedy in that sense and then how it's all depicted and what kind of meaning we can even take from it i feel like there's something about the six o'clock news that flattens the human experience and by spending all this time with all these people we show that it is you can't just simply make it universal like that it's all so much more complicated and in a great bit of uh, you know his rivalry with uh, television and, and other forms of media, uh, Rescue 911, hosted by William Shatner, swoops in and offers uh, you know Sal to do like a whole episode on like the earthquake incident, so McElwee can no longer uh, no longer film him contractually. Yeah. <laughs> with like, in fairness, you know, like. Yeah, he they, was like, take the money. Yeah, because like, he's like, yeah. they're going to fly your whole family to reunite with you in the U.S. And like, dude, you should take that. Because Salvador was like, I started with you, you know? Like, he's such a man of integrity is the implication right. there, you know? And yet the last time McKelly was there, he was filming the faucet because he'd run out of questions for 
<laughs> and McKelvey's like, yeah, don't worry about it. There's a camera obscura uh, nearby that I wanted to go visit. I've got, like, I could use my time over there. <laughs> That's such an odd uh, grace note to end the movie on, too. Of course, there's the moment with his son. We do get the flash forward four years later where his son does... And, he, and uh, Easter with Charlene. There's, like, three more endings. Oh, that's true. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot that there's a whole ending with Charlene. Yeah, that's really touching. And I think, too, for me, it's, like, in the structure, the way... It, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it's, like, you know, peppered throughout the film are these just sort of like montages of, as we've described, all these kind of like just horrific news events. But then when we kind of get that like time jump and he's he's re sort of engaging with all these people, I also kind of read this as like, he finally learned to like, turn off the fucking news, you know, like his brain seems like it's, it's healing a little bit. Like he's more chill. He's like, yeah, we're going to Easter. I got my kid's birthday. I'm not what, I'm not just sitting watching the six o'clock news, you know, fantasizing about all the horrible ways my child could die, you know, or the horrible things that can happen to me. It's this sense of, of him just being like, I have to separate myself from all of that all of that, you know, ambivalent chaos that this has has literally like transmitted into my consciousness, into my home. But also there's there is that segue right at the end where he talks about how there was the bank heist and the planned parenthood murders uh, oh, a block yeah. from where he worked. So like even if he had the TV off, like that shit invaded his life, sure. you know? And then it's like, yeah, the pivot. <laughs> but yeah, dude, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how much shit is in here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a very rich text because even you just mentioning that reminds me of what's maybe my favorite shot of the whole film when he's filming the two newscasters in front of the site of that tragedy, silently standing there waiting for their live 11 o'clock cue. Yeah. And they're just standing there with the microphones while there's all these people mourning behind them and having a vigil and the newscasters are just silently standing there holding their microphones waiting for them to go live really in a, an God amazing damn. moment yeah. yeah yeah it's a special film it, it really it really is do we want to talk about the the ambivalent ambiguous execution of iron edom or should we live leave that up to our uh, viewers to listeners to experience <laughs> maybe uh, leave for themselves because them. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean that's you know it, it's kind of i think open to a certain extent, what actually happens or doesn't happen. Um, I, I just only because like I had interpreted it one way the first time I watched the movie. Uh, and then I read a piece where the person just took it as a given that the reverse was true, but like, there's no way you can anyway. I think it's, I think he's leaving it, uh, very open, yeah. you know, I think he's leaving it open to, to interpretation um, because I think while I was watching it, I had both reactions yeah. where I was like, well, you're literally seeing two things happen. Well, yes, absolutely. But you know, I was like, I was like, Oh, of course it's a, it's a, it's a mock staged execution. Right. You know, like they don't, they don't really, they didn't really do this or whatever. And that's the ultimate, like that's the ultimate, uh, sort of punishment for him is that that 
they killed him on TV. They didn't yeah. kill him in real life. You know, it's like you are dead because everybody saw you die on TV. So even if you showed up in the streets, people would not believe it was you or whatever. And by the way, most people don't recognize him without the fucking wig anyway. It was the yeah. point, you know? But yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's like I was kind of going back and forth on on both of it. But then, you know, I, I guess I didn't really. Yeah, I feel like I walked away with the thought that it was pretty definitive that that he lived in the sense of we saw the evidence of the Martians and just the news apparatus having the technology to create a false reality with mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. And they they used him for what they needed him to. The machine, the machine chewed him up. They accomplished their goals. They no longer needed him. So for their narrative, he's dead. His wife's dead. And now he's just chewed up and he has to go on his own. Yeah, They're I done guess- with him. What's important is that it's pessimistic, either either way that you interpret. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, way yeah. That you interpret it, you know. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a cynical movie. It's it's a very cynical movie, and and throughout the journey, you know, the Martians uh, uh, arriving, the Martians leaving. There isn't this sense that that things are going to be better now that they're gone. It's just, again, that, that things are going to continue the way they are. And, and if it isn't the Martians, it's whoever. It's, well, it's, on that note, you know, uh, he had a, a really hard time getting films made in the capitalist era, which is interesting because he was a guy that was targeted for censorship. He, he talked about in an interview that him and Jawowski were the most two like heavily targeted people and him because he was kind of like a fringe director he wasn't an important director and so they could be like this guy's out of line you know and, and slap him around a little bit they banned the film but they also released the film and he had a lot harder time getting capitalist money for the kinds of ideas he had in terms of what kind of films he wanted to make and specifically like history well, history doesn't exist anymore. It's the 1990s, right? You're not, you can't make that. Uh, and he only made two films after his run in the 80s. He made one film in the 90s and one film in the 2000s. He did a lot of TV work in the interim, but I also learned he, like McElwee, became a professor and a legendary one, of course, at Wolge Film School, where he taught for many years. So he really just pivoted to teaching and television at a certain point. But, um, you know, it's like... It kind of ties into the whole idea of the film, if you think about his experience then, right? Because it's sort of like the way it's presented in this film, right, that this this idea of people seeking out in their media, in their TV, on their news, or in movies, or in art, or, or wherever, uh, you know, a counter, sort of like counter-regime message in a time of perceived, like, totalitarian control. And then when, when the Soviets leave and suddenly, look at all this freedom, now you have total freedom in this capitalist system, it's like the audiences they're they're like the crowd that's sitting there at the goodbye rally where they're just like 
who cares about your big statement now? Like the, the oppressors are gone. They're out of here. Now we just want to party, you know? Now we just want to be entertained. Like we don't want this heavy, dour, allegorical, anti-Soviet, Kafkaesque nightmare. We want to see fucking Independence Day, man. Like we want to see, <laughs> we want to see cool shit. We want commercial shit. We want exciting stuff. We want, we want what they had in America, you know? We don't want this this shit you know send him to woods send him there you know like send him with the rest of the polish freaks yeah, or whatever banish, him, banish the new wave to, right to i mean i think it's like school. it's yeah. it's it's a weird you know i i think um sort of again like prophetic experience for what would happen to him as you've described it yeah in, in the world yeah and it's uh, you know it's an interesting counter narrative to to the way a lot of people perceive you know, censorship uh, in the, like, you know, Iron Curtain Cold War era, right? Where, yeah, his films were censored. He had a film censored in 2003. Like, these things aren't exclusive to, to back yeah. then or over there, you know? You know, and, it, and you know, it, it, again, it also, like, goes to this point that Slavo Žižek once uh, wrote and, and really ruffled a lot of feathers when he was talking about how, you know, well, they're... they're you know, there, in his words, you know, um, there shouldn't be freedom of the press. Freedom of the press is is an illusion in Western societies. Freedom, quote, freedom of the press leads to more control by capitalist entities. Because, again, if you think about TV news, who the fuck gets a TV news program that can broadcast to millions of people? Uh, people who can pay for that, right? If there's a state organization that has regulations and control, well, people would say, well, that's not freedom of the press. That's state news, right? That's regulation. In America, we have total freedom of the press, which is why, Ryan, going back to your intro again, it's like you have now an entire generation of people who've fucking been poisoned by Fox News, right? Like, like Zizek's point was like, freedom of the press look what it's doing like it's it's entities who can go and pay for literally right bezos or whoever right they can pay for whatever fucking message they want because again and it tying back to McElwee, right like the thing that looks more polished the thing that has more sheen the thing that's on the big network the thing that has all the money behind it in america is perceived as more real right again independence day is a real movie ross McKelvey's six o'clock news is just some some like college bullshit or whatever <laughs> well i guess with that is there any real movie or college bullshit that depicts the six o'clock news andy that that you really like um yeah, you know, I mean, man, there's there's like so many. And, you know, Marsh, you obviously already named like a couple that I, I'm a big fan of. And I think there are like those obvious choices, like, you know, network. I, I'm a big fan of network, you know, at least when I saw it at the time. I haven't seen it in probably like, God, 15 years. So I don't know what I would think about it today. You know, it might be very creaky if I watched it today. But as a like a freshman in college, I was like, oh, hell yeah. But, you know, like I had another one in my mind, but during the conversation, I totally forgot what it was. But our conversation led me to 
another film that I had sort of forgotten about, but now it's back, right? Whatever. Anyway, um, there's a really great documentary that I watched when I was in college, in the college bullshit in Edinburgh, a documentary called The Revolution Will Be Televised. And it was a documentary produced by these Irish guys who went to make a, uh, a program about uh, Hugo Chavez. They went to Venezuela when he was, uh, you know, in power. And while they were there making this documentary about him and just about, you know, his presidency and, and the state of Venezuela, uh, the, the coup one of the crews and broke out to replace him. And they just happened to be there with their cameras in the midst of the coup when he was removed from the presidential palace and when all this, this fighting broke out. And one of the most interesting parts of the documentary, and it's sort of what led to the title, is them focusing on the 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 heart of the coup, which seemed to be these massive street battles taking place over the state TV station, like the, the, the place where the news was broadcast. The fiercest and most violent uh, firefights took place over that because from the perspective of both sides, whoever controlled the TV station controlled reality, controlled the message of what was happening. And it was like both sides grappling for that control because they knew it didn't matter what was happening in the streets. What mattered were all the people hiding in their homes watching the news for who's in control, who's in power. It's a really great documentary, and um, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but, but highly recommend it. Chavez himself, you know, had a television show. Big TV guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, these were, uh, this was the news. Yeah. What about next week, Ryan? Do you have good news for us? It's your topic. <laughs> I think so. It's funny. I don't really have a bit as to where this topic came from. I think it just sort of floated into my mind, and I got attracted to the idea of specifically what on earth both of you would program in reaction to it. Because I do think I'm oftentimes drawn towards us getting out of our comfort zones and then our own interpretations of of certain genres or styles. And I was thinking about you know you picking rom coms, and I thought, man. I really want to see a double feature of Marsh and Andy's fairy tales. We've been concerned with depictions of reality this week. Let's really divert into unreality. Bring me fairy tales. And I don't think I'll have too many rules. I think we'll just leave it at that. Let's go to some some mystical territory. Oof. All right. Hell yeah. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify. Send us questions, double features, comments, anything to gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. This must be the screen. And there's the shaft that rotates the turret and the oculus on the roof. If it works, a mirror will bounce an image from outdoors down onto the screen. This is so beautiful. It's like looking at some strange planet.
there's the pier where they were shooting that TV show a few days ago. The image is so strange, off-axis, on the verge of slipping off the edge. And it all seems so fragile, the people and palm trees, the buses and buildings. 